Okay. Welcome back, everybody. This is Myth Busting uh, here at Web Yeshiva with me, Uri Cohen. This is session 15. And once again, we have seven new topics to, uh, to discuss in the course uh, of an hour. So that's uh, seven for the price of one, or technically the price of none, since this entire uh, course is, uh, is free. Um, so, uh, Let's uh, let's get started right away with the uh, with one that's uh, a little bit off the beaten track, but you might have heard this one. Hey, is it true that Orthodox Jews serve men before women, or they think that men should go first in everything? So this is actually bottom line is no. That's not true. It's not true in practice. But as we're going to see, this theoretically could have been in the misunderstood text category because it does look like from the texts that that is what the halacha says, but this is a, a what I would consider a good example of something where if you look at the books, you will come to the wrong conclusion. There's a lot to be said about the, uh, the shift over the last uh, century uh, in the Orthodox world from uh, a mimetic tradition uh, to a text-based tradition, these are the words of one of my teachers, Dr. Chaim Salvechik, uh, in an article that, that he wrote for, for tradition. Uh, it's worth, uh, worth reading. It's called Rupture and Reconstruction. Uh, and it's basically the most important article that's been written about the orthodoxy, about the sociology of orthodoxy. Um, uh, just very briefly, I know this is not our topic, but uh, it'll be an introduction to where, what we're going to see is something where the halacha says this and we do something else. Uh, the it, mimetic tradition is where you know what to do because you follow your parents and you look around, you, you, uh, you see the way that people uh, uh, follow halacha in the real world. That's the way that halacha um, has, has always been, or at least it was, until the, um, uh, the, the major shift uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, away from tradition in uh, in uh, in Europe, and then leading to, and then afterwards with the Holocaust, where communities just weren't there anymore. But the idea is that we're all reconstructing um, uh, the tradition for lack of being in a community where you could look around and say, "Oh, we've been we the Jews of fill in the blank your town have been doing this for hundreds of years," uh, with rare exception. Uh, you know, unless you live in Yerushalayim, and e even then, uh, you, the people, wherever you live, people have not been doing the same thing for the last uh, hundreds of years. So instead, we look at books, text-based tradition, and that with that comes with certain consequences. One of the consequences is that there are uh, sometimes we find the minog is to do this, but the books reflect something else. What are you supposed to do? Should you ask your rosh hashiva? Should you ask your rabbi? There's a lot, lot to be said about this. We touched on the subject. Um, uh, over the summer, when we discussed the uh, the Kiddush cup of the Chafetz Chaim, uh, that was a, an important uh, discussion there. What we're going to see uh, here is an example of a halacha which is from the Mishnah through the Shulchan Aruch, seems pretty straightforward. And yet, in the Orthodox world, uh, including the Haredi world, we don't actually follow it. Uh, and then we'll try to come up with some justification for it. But... Um, this gives me an example, and it gives me an, an, uh, an opportunity to, uh, to share with you something that I wrote uh, to a former student. Um, this is all in introduction to this first topic. A former student uh, asked me, passed on a question. He had an argument with his chavruta. Do we have to worry about the fact that the Shulchan Aruch seems to say you're not allowed to teach your daughter Torah? Um, so I went through, I wrote him a summary of some of the stuff that we said in this, this course a, a few uh, sessions ago. Um, but, but I added that his chavruta is making a mistake by thinking that you can uh, derive uh, practical halacha conclusions from what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. Now, the Shulchan Aruch uh, carries a lot of weight, uh, a, a lot of weight in halakhically observant circles. And yet, there are a bunch of examples, any rabbi... Uh, recognizes these. Uh, I'll mention a few uh, now. Examples of things where, for whatever reason, the Shulchan Aruch, the, the message that you'll get from the Shulchan Aruch on a particular topic is totally different from what Orthodox communities actually do in practice. So it's a problem if somebody converts to Judaism or becomes a, a, 
Baal and they start getting their halacha from books, you know, you have to make, make up the information, sooner or later Baal is going to come across uh, one of these. But really, a lot of us come across these as well, and we, uh, we see one of these in the Shulchan Aruch, and we're like, oh, really? Is that, is that what the Shulchan Aruch says? So it's just a reminder that halacha in practice uh, follows the people, follows what observant communities do as guided by their uh, rabbis, and even in a, even for the Shulchan Aruch, where we give the Shulchan Aruch a lot of weight in halacha, it still does not override what uh, what um, what the practice is. So here are a few examples. Um, something where um, a, uh, examples where if you look at the Shulchan Aruch and you don't look at what Orthodox communities do, you will get the wrong the wrong idea. You'll get the wrong impression. For example, this this one's a big one. Um, a big one in the sense that it comes up all the time. There are a bunch of examples in the Shulchan Aruch where the Shulchan Aruch speaks about fasting. And I'm not talking about the rabbinic fast days, the five or so uh, in memory, mostly in memory of, of the temple. No, the Shulchan Aruch has a bunch of others. Like, just for example, he says, you really should fast on the air of Rosh Hashanah, the day before Rosh Hashanah. Um, and yet, uh, uh, we don't encourage that today. Uh, the, that's just one of a bunch of examples around the year where it seemed to be that people's go-to, I want to do something extra. I want to do something spiritual. I want to get extra, extra credit spiritually. Nowadays, you might learn some Torah. You might give some tzedakah, but you're not going to take on a fast, even though it sounds like from the books that that's what, that's what a lot of our ancestors did. Somebody once asked Moshe Feinstein about taking on a fast to, uh, to make up for, uh, for something bad that he did. And Rav Moshe discouraged him and said, look, optional fasting, may, uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, now, no longer works to bring us closer to God. It just makes us cranky and crabby. Anyway, that, that's one example where the impression you get from the Shulchan Aruch is not what we actually do. Here's another one. When was the last time uh, you heard of a Bechor, a firstborn, actually fasting all day on Erev Pesach? We don't do that. The Minog is to go to a Siyum, uh, the uh, uh, festification in which somebody finishes a Masechet, a tractate of the Talmud, uh, but you would never know that from the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch sounds like firstborn fast, right? If you're writing halachan practice, it's firstborn go to a siyum, parentheses. If they didn't go to a siyum, they would have to fast. Therefore, they make sure to go to a siyum. And speaking of Pesach, not everybody, but a large uh, a majority uh, of, uh, of Orthodox Jews um, sell their chametz uh, through the, their rabbi to a non-Jew before Pesach. At the time of the Shulchan Aruch, this was rare. If you look at the Shulchan Aruch, he doesn't address this except in passing, like a rare example of somebody selling a large amount of chametz to a non-Jew. But as like a matter of course, there's no way you'd figure that out from the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, the Shulchan Aruch in Evan Ezer says a man should stay far away from, uh, from women as some sort of a tzniut thing. And maybe that's still true in Hasidic communities, but uh, in our communities, that has not been the minhag for at least a century, uh, maybe 150 years. Um, another one that you'll only, you'll only get the wrong impression if you, look, if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, you're not allowed to listen to music. I'm not talking about during Sphira or the Omer. You're not allowed to listen to music, period, since... The Chorban, since the temple has uh, been destroyed. That is what it sounds like from the Shulchan Aruch. And I heard from one of the members of Rav Moshe Feinstein's family that Rav Moshe Feinstein himself personally tried to follow this custom. Okay, I don't think that's very practical, and I'm not aware of, of any, any rabbi who recommends anybody do that uh, in any uh, Orthodox community. And yet, that's what it sounds like from the Shulchan Aruch. And one more example. At what age should a male get married? Mitzvah in the Torah Puravu, we just uh, read it a couple weeks ago. So uh, it sounds like from Perk Avod, uh, 18, the Shulchan Aruch says, yeah, 18, that's a standard, but preferable to get married at 13. That's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, now, there have been communities where Jews have, uh, have done that, um, certain parts of the, uh, of, uh, uh, of the Spartac world in the past. As far as I know, there are no Orthodox communities today that follow this at all, even though the Shulchan Aruch says uh, you're really supposed to. And I, I have tremendous respect for the Shulchan Aruch, and we follow it all, a lot of the time, but not all the time. Halacha and Minag do not always follow the Shulchan Aruch, um, and therefore it's a mistake to open up the Shulchan Aruch and assume that what it says in the Shulchan Aruch is the Halacha. 
by all means, do open up the Shulchan Aruch. But in between reading what it says in the Shulchan Aruch and actually putting it into practice, check with your rabbi, unless it's something that you've already seen. So here's an example, okay? Uh, and there's a lot to say on this. I've given a variation on this year. On the, I've given shirim that are variations on this topic, uh, two or three different uh, uh, permutations. The last Mishnah in Masechet Horio, Horiot, like the word hora'a, teaching, uh, speaks about priorities. And it says, ha'ish kodem la'isha. That's pretty open and shut. A man comes before a woman. Not for everything, for two things. La'chayot, to save the life. Ulahashev uh, aveda, and to return a lost item. Ve'ha'isha kodem la'ish. But wait, a woman comes before a man. Le'chasot, to provide clothing. Uh, meaning, you know, somebody's, they're not starving to death, but they're uh, poor people uh, lacking clothing. You give the clothing uh, to, to the women first. And to, uh, to redeem from, uh, from captivity. Uh, women come first. I'm skipping a little bit to the next Mishnah. Kohen, now this Mishnah doesn't say what it's for. But presumably, it's related to what we were just saying about saving the life. So maybe this is uh, instructions for a lifeguard. Who do you save first if two people fall in the water at the same time? The answer is it follows a strict hierarchy of what halacha category people are born into. Kohen, woohoo, Kohanim. Kohen goes first. Kohen, Kodem Levi. Levi, Yisrael. Yisrael, Mamzer. Mamzer, someone who is born as a product of adultery or incest. They're fully Jewish, but they don't, they don't rank in this ranking as high as regular Jews. And then there are people who rank even lower than a mom's heir, Natin, Ger, somebody converts to Judaism, Ger, Levin, Meshuchrar, Amatai, when? When does all this apply? Bizman, Shekulam, Shavim. See, I put that in bold. When they're all equal. Equal in what? It's not clear, but the straightforward reading, which most people, including the Shulchan Aruch, are going to follow, it can be understood from the next words, the last words of, of, the, of this Mishnah. If you have two people, and again, it's not clear for what. Is this saving life? Is this giving tzedakah? Not clear. But let's say it's for everything, for sake of argument. You have somebody who is, who is, um, whose parents committed adultery. So they're not allowed to marry anybody except for another mom's heir. But this person is a Tamar Chacham, is a Torah scholar. And you have to choose between them and a Kohen Gadol who has the highest level of holiness, higher even than a regular Kohen, but that Kohen Gadol is also an Amaaretz, is also an totally ignorant of Torah. The Mishnah says, That Mamzer goes first. In which case, the simple reading of this Mishnah is, when does this hierarchy apply? When they're all equal in Torah knowledge. But when somebody knows, to knows more Torah than the other one, the person who knows more Torah goes first. And the question is, how, does, how do women fit into this? This is a very not clear Mishnah. The words are very clear, but the application is not so clear. So let's look at the way the Shulchan Aruch applies it in sources two, three, and four. We're not going to go through all the details, just, just very briefly. The Shulchan Aruch uh, and the Ramah here in source number two, if you have a bunch of poor people to give money to, and you don't have enough money to give either money to give or clothing to give all of them. Who do you give to first? The Kohen. You give the Kohen first and then the Levi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When does this apply? When they're all the same? B'chachma, in Torah knowledge. But if one of the poor people is a mom, is a Tamar Chacham, then even if that person is a Mamzer, they go first. P.S. the Ramah adds that the wife of Tamar Chacham has the same status as a Tamar Chacham. Okay. Um, and the, the more Torah somebody knows, the, the more they should, they should go first. So source number two is the Shulchan Aruch saying, we should follow this Mishnah when it comes to distributing tzedakah. Source number three, the Shulchan Aruch says, Podim ha'ish, if you're redeeming captives, you redeem the woman first. That's all, also straight out of the Mishnah. Uh, but, uh, but if people are drowning, a man and woman are, are drowning, you save the man first. That's also straight out of the Mishnah. That's number, number three. And number four, still in the Shulchan Aruch. This is now, we're shifting to Choshen Mishpat, the laws of money and courts. Tzarech Dayan, a rabbinic judge, needs sheyakdim ladun hadin shabal lafanav tchila. General rule is, which cases should the Dayan deal with? 
in order, the order in which they come, first come, first serve, which we'll come back to shortly because we haven't seen a source for that. But really, Tamil Chacham should go before everybody. And if you have a lot of different cases, first you have the orphan, then the widow, and then the Torah scholar, and a man before a woman. So this is like a kind of a combination of the Mishnah and some other sources, but mostly these last three sources in the Shochanarach seem to be following the Mishnah. Kohen comes before a, uh, a Levi. That would be in, um, uh, in, at least in distributing tzedakah, maybe also saving the life. A man comes before a woman except for distributing uh, clothes. It's pretty open and shut. And yet, a bunch of contemporary rabbis have observed that we don't follow this. And I don't mean we modern Orthodox Jews. I mean we Torah-observant Jews. Nobody follows this. We don't, as formulated in uh, a book of uh, Jewish medical ethics by one of the most uh, influential rabbi doctors writing medical halacha today, Rabbi Dr. Avraham Sofer Avraham. If you've heard of him, it's because uh, he wrote this multi-volume halacha work called Nishmat Avraham, which is in the order of the Shulchan Aruch, everything medical that relates to halacha. It's very, it's very comprehensive. It's, uh, it's very impressive. He asked a lot of questions to Rosh Hashanah Orbach. Anyway, uh, he wrote an article on this topic called Priorities in Medicine, Whom to Treat First. And part of the article, he asks, does anyone in practice observe the order of priorities stated in the Mishnah? Does the physician do so with his patients? Does the rabbi do so behave if he comes home to find people waiting to tell him their problems? The answer obviously is no. But why not? What justifies behavior contrary to the ruling of the Mishnah and the Shulchan Aruch? So let's start with going back to the point that I made before. The Mishnah and the Shulchan Aruch look pretty straightforward, but we don't follow it. I'm not sure at what point, but I would guess that if you looked really hard, you'd discover that at least for the last several hundred years, you'll find that we don't actually do this. And the question is, is what's the halachic justification for this? Uh, Dr. Avraham uh, has, has one approach. The approach that I'm going to present here is the one that appears uh, in the writing in an article by uh, Rav uh, Yitzhak Zilberstein. Uh, he's the Av Beitin of the Ramat Elchanan neighborhood of Bnei Brak, uh, and he's the Rav of the Maine HaYeshua Hospital in, uh, in Bnei Brak. He's a very prolific author, and he wrote an article called Seder Adifut Nituach, in which he, he says the basis for what we do. What do we actually do? We do first come, first serve. That's what we do. I don't care how much Torah you know, what gender uh, you are, or what order they call you uh, for the Torah, Kohen, and Levi, etc. In practice, we do first come, first serve. That's universal. What's the halachic basis for it? Rav Zilberstein points to this Me'iri, here in source number six. The Me'iri is commenting on a Gemara and Sanhedrin. First, we'll look at the Gemara and Sanhedrin, then we'll look at the Me'iri, and then we'll wrap it up, wrap up this topic. I know we're going a little over time, but uh, I find this topic very interesting. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says, asks, why are there two psukim in the Torah that speak about justice? One of them, judge your uh, fellow with, uh, with justice. That's the source for the mitzvah of Don Wachav Zechut, judge favorably. Use the word tzedek justice once. But the more famous pasuk, tzedek, tzedek, tirdov, justice, justice shall you pursue, use the word justice twice. Why do you need two psukim? One with one word justice, one with two. And the Gemara answers, because there's two types of justice. Kanwa din, kanwa pshara. One is the law, the letter of the law, and the other is the compromise. The compromise is itself a type of justice, and it's in included in the system. And then it gives examples. Let's say you have two boats coming in opposite directions in a, a canal. Um, and if they try to pass each other, there's not enough room, they'll both sink. So they don't want to do that. Which one is going to back up? Or, the, this is all in the Gemara. You have two camels on a narrow mountain path going in opposite directions. Again, if they try to pass each other, they'll both fall off the mountain. Nobody wants that. The question is, who needs to back up? And the Gemara first says, well, first we'll give din. First we'll give something, an objective criterion. Whichever boat or camel has more stuff on it, um, that, one, that one should go first, and the other one should, uh, should back up. Or the one that uh, 
should back up is the one that's closer to its destination. These are objective criteria. But then it says, let's say that both boats or both camels are equidistant from their destination, or both of them are equally uh, loaded with stuff. The Gemara says, you make, they make a compromise and they pay each other. In other words, let's say one ship captain says, oh, I've got 100 shekels here. I'll pay you 100 shekels to, uh, to back up your boat. Now the, the other one says, oh, yeah, I'll pay you 200 shekels to back up your boat. Oh, yeah, well, I'll pay you. Whichever one convinces the other, one backs up and he feels, oh, at least I made some money on, uh, on the deal. That's a compromise, okay? So that, that's the Gemara and Sanhedrin Daflamid bet. And the Me'iri, one of the Rishonim, says this concept, two levels of halacha, the law itself and the compromise, this is the source for what we do when it comes to giving people priority. The law is what it says in the Mishnah, but we don't follow that. So the answer to the question of how long have people been doing first come, first serve, at least since the 1300s. Im hakol shaveh makdimin lakodem. If, meaning, we, well, we, well, I don't want to get into the, the, uh, the technical stuff here, but we let the person go, we give priority to the person who came first. That's what we call first come, first serve. This makes a lot of sense. It's not mentioned in a, in a pasuk. It's not mentioned in a gemara. It's not mentioned in the shochanach. Halacha books don't address this, but it makes sense. It's fair. Everybody starts at the end of the line. And if you wait long enough, everybody gets to the front of the line. This is true for the supermarket, for the, the water fountain, for getting a transplant, for all sorts of things. Everybody understands it's fair. And therefore, this has become the go-to a way to do priorities. How can it fit into the halacha? And the Meir answers, because the halacha itself has two levels. The law, the letter of the law, which is, in this case, is in the Mishnah on the Shulchan Aruch, and the compromise. And this is the compromise. What's, what's the compromise? So that you work out that seems fair. Well, first come, first serve seems fair to most people. And that's why it is completely legitimate to, to do that. I'll just mention in passing there, Moshe Feinstein has a different way to, uh, to go from the Mishnah to uh, what we do, which is that source number eight, he rereads the Mishnah. It's very subtle, but remember when it says, when do you follow the official order of priorities? When they're all the same? He says, when they're all the same, when they all came at the same time, then you say, oh, the Kohen before uh, the Levi. But as long as somebody came before the other one, you go with them first. So according to Moshe Feinstein, it's not just a compromise. It's actually the letter of the law. I find this fascinating. Anyway, moving right along. Frauds, fakes, and forgeries. Okay, so there's a lot to be said about the reinstitution of Tchelet, the, uh, the blue, uh, blue dyed uh, tzitziot. Just very briefly, um, if you want to buy Tchelet today, um, Unless you go the Hasidic route, you're going to buy it, the, the Tchelet produced by the Petio Tchelet uh, Institute, which is run by uh, Dr. Baruch Sturman of Efrat. And the uh, uh, Tchelet is made through uh, a dye uh, produced from the Murex trunculus, uh, which is a type of mollusk, which they not, for years they tried to, there was questions about, about how much evidence they had they finally, literally less than a year ago, they found the cloth from the ancient times that was dyed with the Murex trunculus. That would be both Tchelet and Argaman, the blue and, and the red. But for, from the late 1800s until up through the 20th century, there was a, uh, an ongoing question, debate, as to which, uh, which uh, fish, not fish, whatever, which mollusk, which animal is the source, was the source of Tchelet. So... In the, um, in the 1880s, a Hasidic Rebbe, Rabbi Gershon Liner, um, got really excited about this topic. He, he went to Italy. He ended up writing three books about defending his approach. And his approach was that the source of Tchelet is the cuttlefish, Sepia officinalis. Um, if you, today, if you buy Tchelet from... Um, a Hasidic group, let's say, well, if not the Radziniers, then the Breslovers, if you, if you see Tchelet with a bright blue, 
that's following the Radzina Rebbe. So you'd think if you didn't know any better, like, oh, there's a debate. We don't really know. So yeah, apparently we do know. Uh, as early as Rav Yitzchak, Rabbi Dr. Yitzchak Herzog, in his doctoral dissertation, 1913, Rav Herzog, first he was the chief rabbi of Ireland. Uh, and then from 1936 until he died in 1959, he was the Ashkenazi chief rabbi uh, here in Israel. Well, first British mandate Palestine and then Israel. Uh, he published Torah in English and Hebrew, and he wrote this fascinating book called Tchukal Israel Alpi HaTorah, uh, The Constitution of Israel According to the Torah. He imagines what if we could have a Torah state, not in the future, right now. How would that work? If anybody's interested in that, Rav Herzog's uh, book, is it, that's the way to go. And what did he write his doctoral dissertation on for uh, um, London University about the identification of Tchelet? Uh, and you can, you can read this. Um, here, I have a copy right here. This is uh, this book, The Royal Purple and the Biblical Blue. Only part of this book is Rev Herzog's dissertation, but it's included uh, uh, in this. And, um, and along the way, after all sorts of long technical discussions, uh, he points out that th this uh, Professor Friedlander in Germany, uh, who was at the time the world's expert at dying from mollusks, okay, um, asked him for a sample of the trailer that he had told him about from the Radzina Rebbe. And, uh, and he sent it to him. Uh, and, and he wrote back, that, uh, what you sent me, the blue dye is not from the cuttlefish. Forget about whether Radzina Rebbe was, was right. The stuff produced in the name of the Radzina Rebbe is not actually made from the cuttlefish at all. So Rabbi Herzog writes, I, I rubbed my eyes at reading this, and then he sent it to, uh, to France, he sent it to, uh, to England, and all the labs told him, like, this, is, this stuff is dyed with Prussian blue, which does not come from the cuttlefish. So Rabbi Herzog theorized it would seem that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Radzina Rebbe was victimized by a fraudulent Italian chemist, because that's where the Radzina Rebbe was working, we don't know this, and he admits we don't know this, but uh, given, given the, the background, it seems so unlikely that the Radzini Rebbe would say, I found it, I found, this is the right fish, and here's the stuff that's made from, the, the, I, I found the right mollusk, and here's the stuff that's made from it, but it isn't made from it, okay? So Rav Herzog theorized that some clever but swindling specialist contrived to concoct Prussian dye with the se uh, sepia uh, secretion in such a manner as to conceal the presence of the dye and then to become the sole contractor to the Trewit factory. So it's unfortunate but that, that somebody tricked the Rebbe, but it also means that if you see anybody wearing bright blue Trewit, it means they're wearing something that's not made from any of the opinions, which is, which is kind of sad. So Dr. Baruch Sturman, I mentioned before, the head of the Petit uh, Trewit, um, in an article they wrote in this book, uh, which was published by uh, Yeshiva University, with the Renaissance of a, uh, of a Mitzvah. Uh, he goes through uh, how, exactly, how exactly it was, uh, it was produced, um, but it, it's kind of, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of sad, you know, unlike last week where there was a rabbi who, uh, who uh, passed off his, uh, his, his uh, book as a fraud. Here, the rabbi was the victim of, uh, of the fraud, but it has all these ramifications for everybody who wants to wear Tchewa today. Anyway, Moving right along, straight Torah, that's where we present an opinion that people think is the halacha, but in fact, although that opinion does exist, it is most certainly not the, the halacha. And that is, dina de malchuta dina. The Gemara says you have to follow the law of the land. The law of the land is the law. Hey, has anybody heard this one? Especially from somebody who doesn't want to pay taxes, let's say in Israel. I heard that it doesn't apply in the land of Israel. True or not? It's true that there is a Rishon who says it, one of the medieval rabbis, as presented in this article by Rav Herschel Schechter, uh, who, has, of course, has been the Rosh Kola at Yeshiva University since 1971. Uh, a relatively brief uh, article. He explains, first of all, there was a theory among some of the Rishonim. The idea behind Dina de Machuta Dina, as applied to taxes, is the idea of rent, that the king owns the country and you have to pay. Why does the king have the right to pay to charge taxes? Because you're living in the country that, that's owned by the king. So he can charge you rent. That, that's the opinion of, 
some of the Rishonim. So the Ron says, but the exception would be Eretz Yisrael, because Eretz Yisrael doesn't belong to any ruler, Jew or non-Jew. It belongs to God. So you, don't, you shouldn't need to pay anybody, anybody rent. So this view is quoted by the Ron. The Ron is a Rishon. Rav Shechter says, there are many religious people who are not that knowledgeable of any other comments made by the Ron. They're only familiar with this one. The truth of the matter is that not only has this view not been accepted in the Shulchan Aruch, it didn't even gain honorable mention. Like, it's not even one of the opinions. It's not there at all. It is not there in the codes, in the codes of, uh, of halacha. And note, this is not an example where we say, well, we follow what people do. No, we follow what the halacha says. And then Rav Shakti goes on to say, P.S., the basis for taxation is totally different from what it was in Talmudic times. Like, the whole premise of, well, the, you can't... The king shouldn't have to shouldn't be allowed to charge you rent in the land of Israel. That's not why we pay tax today. We t pay ta tax today because everybody living in the neighborhood, in the city, in the country, etc., we're all shutzfim. We're all partners. So taxes that's not to enrich the king. It's because the employees of the government who are representing the people they need to be paid for the in the name of the people. It has nothing to do with the king. So even if the Ron were correct. The whole thing is thrown out because that's not, that's not what, what, what taxes are, are today. And just to conclude on this point, Rabbi Chaim Jachter, uh, prominent uh, shul rav in, in, in Teaneck, um, and he's one of the uh, top consulting rabbis for uh, Erevin uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the United States. He wrote in one of his halacha books, he has uh, uh, four volumes. Uh, this is the, the fourth one. It's called Gray Matter of his uh, halacha essays. And uh, I don't know if all of them or some of them anyway are available online, the full text at Safaria. He points out on this topic, the subtopic of Dina de Machuta Dina, it's the tour and the Shulchan Aruch and all the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch agree that the Ron is not the Halacha. So this is, this is it's not, uh, it's not intellectually honest for somebody to say, I heard that, I heard that you can rely on this opinion. No, actually, you did not hear that you can rely on this opinion. The fact that there is an opinion at all, you know, we like to learn Torah and we like to see a wide variety of opinions. But what, what you actually follow has, has to, uh, should follow mainstream halacha. Moving right along, let's talk about Shakespeare, the Merchant of Venice, and the infamous Jew. There's so much to say uh, on this topic, and even though we're not going to go through it now, when you get a chance, I recommend going through the quote at the beginning of this source sheet, um, which is from the book that was published just a couple months ago by Dara Horn called People Love Dead Jews. Uh, has all, she has a whole chapter called Commuting, Commuting with Shylock about how she listened to the audiobook of... Uh, of the Merchant of Venice with her 10-year-old son, and he was very insightful, and I included that on, on the first page. Um, anyway, so uh, the whole premise, the legal side, is that this, uh, the villain, who keeps being referred to as the, the Jew, uh, Shylock, uh, he says to the person he's uh, lending money to um, that if you default on the loan, then I can get a pound of flesh. In other words, I can, like, carve up part of your body uh, to take that uh, instead, of, uh, instead of being paid money. So if you're really interested in this topic, there is one thing you need to go through, and that is the Hebrew essay in the book L'Or HaLacha by Rav Shlomo Yosef Zevin. He has a 25-page essay in Hebrew called Mishpat Shylock, summarized here by uh, Rabbi Daniel Z. Feldman which is there isn't a rabbinic court in uh, the Merchant of Venice. Let's say somebody came to a real rabbinic court, a bait in. Would this thing fly? Would anybody be able to say, um, yes, you know, he, he signed the agreement and, and he has, he's giving up his right to, to, uh, to keep his body uh, pristine? Uh, and the short of it is no. Actually, Abatin would throw that out. So aside from the issue of how anti-Semitic was Shakespeare anyway, um, aside from that, the whole premise of that, that goes through the, the, the plot line that goes through the Merchant of Venice of the, that this, this thing that this evil Jew is going to uh, um, uh, is threatening this uh, nice Christian guy uh, with, the whole premise is, uh, is ridiculous. Uh, if you want more details, that's by um, 
and the article here by Rabbi Avi Weinstein, this is the full article. Um, Rabbi Avi Weinstein uh, used to be the uh, head uh, educational person at uh, Hillel in the United States. Um, he's now a, a school rabbi, if I remember correctly. Anyway, has a lot of uh, uh, off the beaten track Torah, and um, he has an article called Shylock Lex Talianus and Parshat Emor. Lex Talianus, of course, is Ayan Tachad Ayan. Do we say uh, an eye for an eye? And uh, we don't have time to go through that, but in the course of it, he mentions uh, that he brings up uh, Rav Zevin, and he says, uh, summarizing Rav Zevin, uh, a Jewish court would have thrown out the case because Antonio, the, uh, the borrower, was only the steward of the collateral offered and not the owner. His pound of flesh did not belong to him, but to God. You don't own your body. As it's formulated in uh, in in the uh, in the midrash, only the in, in the Gemara, only the one who gives you life has the right to take it away. That's said in the context of of suicide, and so too you don't have the right to give up part of uh, of your body. So he never had the right to offer something that was never his. To allow this possibility was maybe a Venetian, but more likely a Shakespearean mishigas, like some some crazy idea, not not a uh, not a Jewish one. Okay, moving right along. People thought the darndest things, which we, uh, we go through things that people have thought throughout history. Uh, sometimes they're totally wrong. Sometimes, well, there are opinions to rely on, but uh, it seems sometimes they seem a little, a little uh, strange to us. So uh, the, the comment that's, uh, that I, I found online relates to um, stories in Haredi circles about when Mashiach comes. It goes without saying that these stories act as if Jewish history had frozen somewhere in the late 1700s, apart from a transfer of Jews to America. Uh, for example, there, there are news reports of an old man on a white donkey riding into Jerusalem, blowing a shofar. Bam, Mashiach. Everyone goes to Shul or Yeshiva. The Shul and the Yeshiva magically lift into the air and they fly to Eretz Yisrael, bewildering uh, the flight controllers at Lod Airport. Um, so, I read this at some point in the 1970s or 80s when it was in uh, in Olamenu, and uh, just this week I uh, I borrowed from my uh, my cousins the Landau's who live uh, on my block uh, the best of Olamenu volume two, uh, so old that the the cover has fallen off. Um, I didn't remember the details, but it is a story called that day, um, that day by by Batsheva Grama. The story you're about to enjoy is a true one, only it has not yet taken place. And it focuses on kids in school who start their day normally, and then Mashiach comes. And then they magically get flown in their yeshiva uh, to, to the land of Israel, and they see uh, they are uh, brought to Yerushalayim, where the streets are paved with diamonds. Uh, it doesn't say how the, uh, how the cars drive on that. Uh, and uh, Mashiach is here, and all the Jews from the past who've ever died have been resurrected. Wow, there's the Chafetz Chaim, and it's really exciting. And uh, and somehow this uh, stuck with me. I remembered it was in uh, it was in Olamenu. So uh, the question is, many of our ancestors believed that this was what, what was going to happen, more or less, which is Mashiach will show up, boom, and then Galut, exile will end, we'll all be magically taken to Israel, everything will be different. Uh, uh, the, um, the dead will be resurrected. It's not that this is a myth, but this is a combination of a bunch of, of uh, opinions within one approach within Chazal. So you, I guess you could call this street Torah. So people thought the darndest thing, this is like street Torah from the past, and that is the Gemara has two or three dapim in a row in Sanhedrin. What's going to happen when a Shiach comes? Opinion after opinion after opinion after opinion. I won't say that they all contradict each other, but a lot of them certainly contradict each other. So within that, you have, I just, I just uh, pulled a few examples here, a few of the debates. Tshuva or not? Is Mashiach going to come when the, only when the Jews do tshuva or even before? This is a machloka between uh, Rav and Shmuel and Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Yeshua and the Gemara. Is Mashiach going to come sooner or later? Moving on to, uh, uh, to page 7. Is, uh, on the top right, is Geula going to be a heavenly type or an earthly type? Let's actually look, look at this uh, right now. Uh, source number 4. There's a contradiction between two psukim, the Gemara asks. There's a pasuk in Daniel that says uh, that Daniel had a vision in which 
the Bar Enosh, the Son of Man, meaning Mashiach, was coming with the clouds of heaven. You know, it's like he's flying in the sky, uh, supernatural. And yet there's a Pasuk in Zechariah that says, Ani v'rochev al chamur, that Mashiach will be a, a poor person who is riding on a donkey. P.S., the white thing, there are no Jewish sources for that. Theoretically, we could do that as a whole separate topic. Um, that seems to be barred from somebody else's religion uh, or culture. But donkey, yes. That's this, this opinion uh, in, uh, in the Pasuk. But the Gemara asks, how can you have both uh, heavenly and earthly? Uh, very uh, Riding on a donkey that's so lowly and uh, flying in the sky. And the, and the Gemara answers, Zahu, if the Jews have the Zahut, the merit, like if they're on a high enough level, then Iman on then Gula will come in a supernatural way. But Lozachu, if the Jews do not merit, but Gu'ul will happen anyway, then how is it going to happen? Meaning in an earthly way. It will be done with people, without miracles. Is it going to happen instantly or gradually? There are opinions on, on both sides of, of this as well. But let's look at one more machloket in the same Gemara. This is one of the more famous ones. Machlokin in the Gemara about are there going to be miracles during the time of Mashiach or not? So Rabbi Yochanan says, yes, that's what all the prophets are, we're prophesying, the time of Mashiach. And Shmuel says, wrong. The world will not change with Mashiach, except the Jews will no longer be subject to, uh, to other, uh, other nations. And the Rambam very explicitly follows Shmuel, and he says, don't think, source number eight, you shouldn't think that Mashiach has to do any miracles or resurrect the dead. And he gives the example of uh, Rabbi Kiva, who was convinced that Bar until Bar Kochva was killed, Rabbi Kiva was convinced that Bar Kochva was Mashiach. Bar Kochva didn't do any miracles, but that was good enough for Rabbi Kiva. It should be good enough for us. That's a summary of the Rambam here. As opposed to the Ravid, who argues with the Rambam, and he quotes the Gemara, in which they did ask Bar Kochva to, uh, to do uh, miracles. And speak of miracles, who's going to build the Beit HaMikdash? This is not debated in the Gemara, it's debated in the Rishonim. Rashi takes the miraculous approach, and he says in two places in his commentary on the Gemara, the Beit HaMikdash will show up from heaven. Okay, and that's what a lot of, of Jews have thought through the ages, and presumably at least some people say so now. But the Rambam very explicitly rejects this in source number 11, and he says not only is the Beit HaMikdash going to be built by a person under the supervision of Mashiach, but Mashiach doesn't even count as a definite Mashiach until he takes care of the building of the Beit HaMikdash. That's not a minor machloket. That's a huge deal. And in light of that, whether the shuls are going to fly or not is a much more minor deal. The Gemara does say that, Gemara and Megillah, it does say that the shuls and uh, yeshivot will be transported to uh, Eretz Israel, but Rav Yosef Chaim, better known as the Ben Chai, says this Gemara is not meant to be taken literally. Anyway, bottom line of this whole topic is the Ramam says, don't worry about how it's going to happen. Okay? The order, after he gives his own opinion, but he says the order of how it's going to happen is not important. It's not an ikar. It's not one of the essential things you have to believe in. And these details, when is Mashiach going to come? How is Mashiach going to come? The Rambam says it will not bring you to fear God or love God at all. So just, just let it go. It's not important. Very, very uh, unusual, un unusually uh, strong formulation from the Rambam. So yes, our ancestors had the right to assume that Gula will happen magically with Mashiach, but it's a little bit... Uh, it's a little bit difficult to maintain that now after Kibbutz uh, Galiot in Gathering of the Exiles has already happened to a, a large extent, has been happening for uh, over 100 years. It's hard to argue that, no, let's pretend that, it didn't, that none of this happened at all. None, we're totally Galut until Mashiach shows up. Right. And then I'll go uh, pay my taxes in the land of Israel, you know, that's run by a Jewish government. Anyway, moving right along. Couple more topics to uh, uh, to finish here. Shluchei mitzvah einan nizokin. The Gemara says, and that is a quote from the Gemara. People doing mitzvah can't get hurt. The, does the Gemara say that? Yes. But when people use it to justify, I read a story just a couple weeks ago about somebody who. Uh, 
who he hadn't filled his car enough with uh, with gas, uh, but uh, he was he was really nervous about whether he was going to uh, make it home in the middle of the night. Would he have to call a tow truck? But it's okay because he had been going to a mitzvah, so he was sure that God wouldn't let anything happen to uh, to him. Uh, and the proof is that he his car didn't uh, didn't run out of gas. You see that proves it. Um, much more uh, seriously, though, in the last year and a half, some people in the Orthodox world, including one particular Bnei Brak rabbi, Rabbi Klein, whom I was not familiar with uh, beforehand, wrote a whole piece about how you don't have to worry about this whole Corona COVID thing, because as long as you're learning Torah, davening uh, in your shul, etc., it's not going to affect you. Uh, and apparently looking at the, uh, the Gemara and ignoring uh, everything that has happened uh, uh, in, uh, in the world, including in Orthodox communities uh, since 2020. It's uh, quite, quite shocking that anybody wrote this at all. Um, we'll look at one or two refutations of it. But the short of, it, of the refutation is, does the Gemara say that people doing mitzvah can't get hurt? Yes, it does. But then it qualifies it in such a way that it's not a practical principle. That's a misunderstood text. It appears in two Gemaras. Let's look at those Gemaras right now. Source number one, Gemara in Shabbat of Samach Gimel. If anybody, it start, the Gemara starts with a nice idea. Actually, this is not, this is, this is the other opinion. The, the, there's a Pasuk in Kohelet, which is not a source from normative halacha. The Gemara sometimes quotes it to, to bring a source, to, 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 to hang a halacha on. But shomer mitzvah lo davara. A person who keeps a mitzvah, a mitzvah will not know anything bad. Nothing, which sounds like nothing bad will happen to them. And uh, the Gemara says, we see from here that if you do a mitzvah properly, you won't hear any bad news. Which is a nice, beautiful idea, but that's not the same thing as putting yourself in danger. And you'll notice that it's, it's an agadic statement. It's not a halachic statement, and it's quoting something from Kohelet. So people tend not to refer to this. Um, what they refer to is this. The Gemara in Pesachim and Chulin. Let's look at that right now. The Gemara is talking about checking your house uh, for uh, where chametz might have gotten in the cracks back when they had uh, walls that were not with the current plaster. Like, there might have might actually be cracks in the walls on... And uh, how far do you have to go to, uh, to check for, for chametz? So the Gemara starts by saying, you're not obligated to put your hand in, in a hole in the wall to check for, uh, for chametz because of danger. What danger are we worried about? The Gemara gives two opinions, and it addresses both of them. One of them is that we're afraid that, um, that there's a scorpion in the wall who might bite you. Um, that's danger, so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, you don't have to do it. The other opinion is, which we're not going to explain in detail, but uh, that's going to be in the second paragraph. That it says we're worried about a non-Jew if you if your house shares a wall with your Aramean next door neighbor who is worried that Jews are magicians who are casting uh, magical spells, and if, if he sees you putting your hand in the wall, then he'll he'll accuse you of trying to kill him. That's a kind of a, a different kind of a danger. The Gemara asks in each of those two cases, two types of uh, of danger. But didn't Rabbi Elazar say people who are on their way to doing a mitzvah can't get hurt? So what are we worried about? So, so put your hands on the wall. Let's say a scorpion is there. You won't get hurt. So the Gemara answers, ah, but we're afraid that maybe you lost a needle. And while you're putting your hands in the, in the hole in the wall, you might also be thinking of the needle. And Rashi explains it. Since your kavana is only partly to do the mitzvah and partly to do this optional thing, that's not enough to protect you from, uh, from danger. And then it says, wait, and then the, the Gemara challenges it and then says, okay, okay, we're, we're, we're adjusting the answer. Maybe, maybe after you, uh, you put your hand in the wall, in the hole in the wall to find chametz, maybe after that, after you do the mitzvah of then you'll look for the needle. Aha, but since you did the mitzvah already, you're no longer protected. These are just different possibilities that Gemara throws out. And then it says, ah, oh, but maybe the danger is not from the scorpion, but rather from your uh, hostile non-Jewish neighbor. Uh, are, uh, 
why aren't we worried about shuachai mitzvah? Meaning that, sorry, why are we worried about danger? Shouldn't we say people on the way to doing a mitzvah cannot get hurt? And the Gemara answers, Hecha de shachiach hezeka, shani. Where danger is common, it's different. Meaning the statement, people on their way to doing a mitzvah will not get hurt, is not talking about a case of danger. If danger is shachiach, it is found, there is a danger that is a, uh, that's out there, like you do have a dangerous uh, neighbor, so then you don't get to write it off, to write off that danger just because you have, uh, just because you're on, on your way to doing a mitzvah. Point is, and that's the end of the Gemara. What's the bottom line? There are different ways to explain why we're worried about danger, but bottom line is, we're worried about danger. So far, how many cases are there where the Gemara says, in practice, you don't have to worry about danger? Zero. And here's the other Gemara. Gemara in Chulin. This is the very last off in, in Chulin, and it tells um, the, the famous uh, story uh, with, uh, 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 well, which sounds like it's a theoretical story, but then it says, no, no, they actually saw this. There are two mitzvot in the Torah where it says, do this and you live a long life. One is honoring your parents, and the other is sending away the mother bird. But what if a father said to his son, go up there and bring me the, uh, the, uh, the little birds, and then on the way back, I'm doing both these mitzvot, the kid fell and died. So, so where's the long life? And so Rabbi Yaakov answers, it must be that the long life is in uh, the world to come. It's not, it's not in, uh, in this world. And the Gemara then goes on to say, wait a minute. What about doesn't this contradict? If you, say, you just told me a story and, and says, Rabbi Yaakov saw this happen. But how can that be? Don't we have a general rule that on your way to doing mitzvah, any mitzvah, not just the one that promises a long life, you won't get hurt? And the Gemara says, oh, um, he didn't get hurt on his way to doing a mitzvah. He got hurt on the way back. Are you happy now? <laughs> like, that's, that's not it. Meaning it's not very practical. And then it says, or, or it was a rickety ladder. On a rickety, on a rickety ladder, then even on the way to doing a mitzvah, makam de kavua hezeka shani. This is almost the same formulation as in uh, the previous Gemara, where there is a possibility of getting hurt, then all bets are off. So, once again, how many practical cases are there? These are the only two Gemaras that address the issue. How many practical cases where you're allowed to rely on this principle to put yourself in danger? And the answer is zero. And this is pointed out by Rabbi Yosef uh, Gavriel Beckhofer uh, in source number four in a, an article they wrote for the Journal of Halacha and Contemporary Society called Shomer Psaim Hashem in the novel Coronavirus. Shomer Psaim Hashem is a different principle that's brought up in the Gemara in a different context, which would seem to indicate that you're allowed to put yourself into a small level of danger. There's, there's a lot to be, to be said there. The short of it there is that even in, co in context of that Gemara, it's only talking about a very, very unlikely uh, danger. But that, that's all addressed in this article, which you can find on, um, uh, on Academia. Rabbi Beckhofer posts all his Torah online. Very, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, Rabbi... Uh, Yitzchak Adorstein, I didn't put him on the source sheet, but uh, from, uh, from L.A., um, in, uh, in his website, uh, Cross Currents has an article attacking this Rabbi Klein's piece as well. The one who's the strongest, has the strongest formulation against it is one of my neighbors, Rabbi Dr. Nathan Swifkin, um, who uh, we've, we've seen him in, the, in this class before. He's uh, the zoo rabbi. He's the director of the Biblical Museum of Natural History uh, right here in Beit Shemesh. And... In his piece that responded uh, on his website, Ration Rationalist Judaism, that responded to this article from this Rabbi Klein, uh, here's the way he, Rabbi Swift can formulates it. Whatever, so the, the bottom line, facts on the ground, people engaged in the mitzvah are not harmed except when they are. Do people not realize that the principle of shulchem mitzvah enam nizakim is something with absolutely zero effective significance? It's a nice agata concept. You know, you can create interesting questions. It's not something that's practical effect. Now, you might say, but the Gemara uses this. 
And that's why I brought this in the context of a misunderstood text. Perhaps surprising, the answer is no, it doesn't. The Gemara never uses the principle of Shvuchim Mitzvah Enam Nizakim to argue that people should engage in potentially risky endeavors. Every instance of this principle in the Gemara is the same. The Gemara mentions how people should not engage in certain risky actions. But isn't it said that Shvuchim Mitzvah Enam Nizakim? And the Gemara answers, it doesn't apply in those cases because there's a realistic risk. We have no idea when or even if the Gemara would ever actually apply it. So he concludes to blithely employ principles about people engaged in mints not being harmed without dealing with the fact that it's observably not true is appalling. Very, very harsh condemnation, but you know what? He has the facts uh, on his side. He has the texts uh, on his side. And now let's, let's wrap it up with our last, last example. Not a myth, but something that's true, stranger than fiction. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe went to therapy with none other than Sigmund Freud. So there's this long article uh, on the subject, 20-page 20, 20 article in the Psychoanalytic Review, written by two uh, psychoanalysts. I was about to say two Jewish psychoanalysts, but that would be redundant. They, uh, they, they collaborate on a bunch of articles about uh, psychoanalysis, and they, uh, they co-wrote a book. Uh, called Centers of Power, The Convergence of Psychoanalysis and Kabbalah. One of these authors lives in Yerushalayim, one of them lives in, in London. So this is just highlights of the article. In the winter of 1902 to 1903, Rav Shalom Dovber Schneerson, the fifth of Avicher known by the acronym Rashab, traveled from Russia to Vienna to consult with the famous professor. And he went with his son, who became, later became the sixth, Sixth Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the Rayat. The, Re the Rebbe was 42, his son was 22. And it wasn't until the diaries were published of the last, the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, it wasn't until then that the identity of the famous professor was revealed. So that was not until 1997. So people knew he went to see, he went to Vienna, but Surely there were other psychoanalysts in, in Vienna. No, no, it really was, it really was uh, uh, Sigmund Freud. Uh, we know this now, um, and they go on to explain it. Freud did not write it up, but there were a bunch of his cases that he didn't write up. We have it written from the diaries of these uh, um, three different, uh, the, la the last uh, uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe's. Uh, some, when this was revealed in 1997, some Hasidim were aghast that the, the Rebbe Rashab had sought help from Freud, a secular Jew known for his anti-religious views. However, others saw this as a sign of his greatness, that he knew when to seek help for himself. He would go to the best professional available, and he could do so without being prideful. Anyway, a lot of the article goes on to theorize what they might have said to each other, meaning the diary entries mentioned just a couple of things, but it's possible, it's possible, and we, we know that Sigmund Freud went on to, uh, to give uh, the Rebbe advice on how to, uh, to get out of his depression. Um, uh, it is clear, and that seemed to have worked, it is clear uh, that there was a mutual interactive understanding between uh, Freud and the Rashab about basically what, what's going on with the mind and the heart, meaning it wasn't just that Sigmund Freud asked him, you know, lie here on the couch, you know, tell me about your mother or whatever other stereotypes. Uh, but we know from the diary entries that they discussed Hasidut, that they discussed how does the mind work uh, according to Hasidut and comparing and contrasting it with uh, psychoanalysis. So the authors of this article theorized that maybe some of Freud's later writings might have been influenced by the Hasidic ideas that came up in, in his therapy sessions with the, uh, um, with the Rebbe Rashab. And they, they go so far as to say that, uh, yes, you know, Freud lived the life of a secular, skeptical Jewish intellectual. That was his revealed persona, what, uh, what a Hasid would call the garment that he wore while being in the world. But maybe there was also a concealed Freud who utilized Hasidic ideas in his work. For this, you know, I, I would... Uh, I rely on people who know more psychoanalysis and more Hasidut than I do. But the people who wrote this article know a lot about, about psychoanalysis. So if that's good enough, then you might want to uh, 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 check out this article. Okay, our time is up. Uh, I want to thank everybody for, uh, for joining me. Uh, and if anybody is still uh, hanging around, uh, let's go through, uh, through the chat. Otherwise, uh, 
see you next week. Okay. Uh, Mark asked, halacha slash minag that women should walk behind men because of tzniyut, can that translate into a mindset back of the bus for women? So I actually have a shear on this, uh, on this topic. Um, it is not formulated there as women are in the back. It's formulated as a man is not allowed to be mistakel. He's not allowed to gaze at a woman's body. And the way that, that this halacha is usually understood is that if a man is walking right behind a woman, then either he is gazing at her body or it looks like he's gazing at her body. And both of them are something that, that he needs to avoid. So it's not formulated there as a man needs to go first. It's that the man needs to not be walking uh, behind the woman. There's a fascinating exchange of letters between Shlomo Zaman Orbach and the Tzitzel Yezer, Rabbi Waldenberg, as to whether it's practical to follow this at all in a uh, in uh, on the sidewalks of Yerushalayim. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, I see. Uh, Richie wrote the Meiri must be the source for modern airline flight uh, bumping. Um, the the who, who comes first? Uh, uh, right, uh, whatever algorithm uh, created by the by the airlines is presumably following uh, following the Meiri. Uh, let let's go with that. Um, I see that Lynn wrote. Uh, the more recent 21st century academic papers in Israel revealed DNA tests on the ancient garments that showed that the DNA matched the, uh, the snail, which matched the archaeological sites that, uh, that found where the snails were, uh, were processed. Right, so at this point, thank you, uh, thank you, Lynn. At this point, there's a lot of evidence that it's the murex, which is the, um, the mollusk that, uh, that had been used in ancient times and is the mosque that is being used by the Petil Tchelet organization to create the, uh, the Tchelet. There was a time when it was somewhat uh, speculative, but, but by now there's, uh, there's a lot more evidence. There are still rabbis who will respond, I don't care, you can't wear Tchelet today, even if it's the same, made from the same uh, mosque because we lost the Mesora. This is a position that was presented by Rabbi Salvechik's great-grandfather, the Beit Halevi, who was responding to the Radzina Rebbe in the 1880s or 90s. Uh, not, every, not everybody agrees, even within the Salvechik family, that that was what he said. Rav Shechter has given Shirema on this topic. But if you're going to object to wearing Tchelet today, that would be the objection. So you could say, I don't care what the archaeologists say. Um, you, it, you need the Mesora. Rav Shechter himself, uh, perhaps famously in Yeshiva University circles, thinks that archaeology uh, carries a lot of weight for th this kind of purpose, and, uh, and that's good enough. That's good enough to say, this is it. Um, it doesn't matter that uh, for a while we didn't know what the Tchelet was. We now know, and therefore, uh, and therefore he put in his order for, uh, for Tchelet. Um, right. Uh, okay. Anna Elbaum uh, on Shylock. The Sherlock Holmes story, The Veiled Lodger, contains a quote that was made famous by the BBC show. Your life is not your own. Keep your hands off it. Oh, that's interesting. I'd forgotten that one. So that, that, fits, uh, that fits with the way that uh, Rev Zevin um, presents why, uh, why Sherlock would not have gotten away with that in, uh, in a Baton. So, so yes, we can bring... Uh, can, Bring evidence for uh, for Shakespeare from uh, from Conan Doyle, or rather, not Conan Doyle himself, but his uh, his current uh, the screenwriters um, who no longer have to pay um, royalties to the Conan Doyle estate. Um, that's uh, I don't know if they actually do, but they don't have to anymore. Uh, uh, Richie pointed out many shuls have already been transported to Israel. For example, Glenwood Shul in uh, Hashmonaim. Uh, right, I remember seeing in, uh, in Kiryat Moshe uh, going to, I forgot the name of the shul, but I was there more than once. There's a little shul in Kiryat Moshe um, that was officially, his, its second name is the Young Israel of a place in, uh, in Brooklyn where Jews don't live anymore. And the idea Wait, is that, that they had, was which that one? Clare, Claremont Park, Claremont Parkway, something like that? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And the idea is that they have the uh, the yurt site tablets 
uh, on the on the wall there, as if as if the walls of the shul from uh, from this abandoned community in uh, in New York have uh, flown to uh, uh, to Israel. So yes, that is a. Uh, that's not as that's not as spiritual as the interpretation given to this Gemara by uh, by the Ben Ishtai, but uh, but yes, uh, you can you can say that, and of course uh, the uh, the shul where some of us daven in uh, in Ramat Beit Shemesh, Kilat uh, Avat and Rabbi Swifkin's shul as well. We have the uh, um, the uh, the Aron. Uh, we have the um, the Ark from uh, from a shul in uh, in Dublin. Um, which uh, what's it called? Something road shul, um, where they uh, the shul was um, giving up. You know, its community had had already left. So, in addition to giving other shuls their uh, their Torah scrolls, they also uh, made an arrangement for a shul in Israel to get this enormous aron that's more or less floor to ceiling. Uh, and the first time you walk into the, the shul here, you're like, where did th that come from? And the answer is, it came from Ireland. It's not, a, it looks it looks strange. Coincidentally, not coincidentally, it's uh, it Chief Rabbi Herzog's shul who was the first source today. Right, right. Good point. I forgot about that. And when they had the official uh, installation in the shul, uh, who was the uh, invited guest? It was uh, Yitzhak Herzog. Uh, grandson of the chief rabbi and namesake, who is representing the uh, Israeli government, and uh, and you know, and 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 he remembered that, <laughs> like he had been, he had been, uh, no, he had been there. No, he, he, I think he, I think his father uh, had been uh, had been in that shul. But the point is that, like, it's so rare to find that sort of thing that a shul is transported. There are at least one or two shuls. That are that exist now in Yerushalayim that have been transported from from communities in uh, in Chutzlaretz. I was just reading about one from uh, from Italy. There's this Italian Jewish museum in Yerushalayim that includes a shul, which is still used for the uh, Italian uh, minion. You know, and they brought all the stuff to this. So yes, so uh, that is uh, that is a good interpretation, a very practical interpretation of. Um, of the Gemara about the shuls being transported uh, to the land of Israel. Any other comments? Does anybody want to uh, unmute themselves and uh, and raise any issues besides what, we, what we've already uh, addressed? Oh, I see. I forgot to turn off the recording. Okay, whoever's watching this, you've gotten the benefit of the last eight minutes of uh, going through the chat. Um, so uh, thanks again for uh, everybody for uh, to everybody for uh, for joining me. And uh, next week, seven new topics. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, to putting it together and uh, being here a week from now and going through it uh, with everybody here. Thanks again and uh, Shabbat Shalom.